Welcome to the Don't Break a Leg podcast. I'm Danielle Parzanigan, a dancer and physical therapist specializing in the treatment of performing artists in Houston, Texas. And I'm Jake Manley, an athletic trainer and physical therapist at Pro PT in Winchester, Virginia. I lift weights, and the only time I dance is if I've had a couple beers at a wedding. Though we come from such different backgrounds, we're both incredibly passionate about the performing arts. We hope to educate you on a variety of topics about the health and wellness of performing artists to optimize your performance, longevity, and success. Welcome to the show. have an awesome podcast coming up with Claire's Eye. There's actually so much information that we had to split it into two parts. So what you're going to hear today is probably about the first hour or so of our conversation with Claire, where we talk all about resistance training with the female athlete. I also would like to give a quick ad for one of our sponsors, which happens to be the company that I work for. So life is pretty weird right now. And with the current situation, We don't really have the same access to healthcare or training that we did previously. In an effort to respond to that need, Pro is now offering virtual health and wellness coaching to help facilitate you staying active and achieving your goals. You can speak one-on-one with me, a certified athletic trainer, licensed physical therapist, and a strength coach uh, to discuss training, injury, rehab, or how you can stay accountable, take back control, and optimize your health and fitness. Our approach is evidence-based, comprehensive, and focuses entirely on you. One-time consultations as well as long-term programs are available. Regardless of what your specific goals and needs are, I guarantee that we can cater everything to what you need, within reason. If you guys are interested or want more information, go ahead and reach out to me directly. I'll provide um, ways to do so in the description. All right, hope you guys enjoy the show. Hey, everybody, and welcome to the first episode, right? This is the first one. This is exciting, of the Don't Break a Leg podcast. My name is Jake. I'm a physical therapist and athletic trainer, and I'm here with Danielle. Hi, everybody. And today we are joined by our special guest, someone who I've been friends with on Instagram for, what, I guess like a year, a year and a half now maybe, Uh, Claire Zai. And for those of you who don't know Claire, Claire graduated from the University of Colorado uh, Integrative Physiology Master's Program in 2018. Currently, she is a clinical researcher for the Navy, helping persons with severe limb trauma. When she's not working, she's training as a powerlifter in San Diego, California, and running her coaching company, Bullseye Strength. It's like a really funny like play on words. If you guys saw it written out, it'd be more apparent. Uh, where she utilizes the skills she's learned from her education and her own lifting career to help women find their strength and train for powerlifting. Most recently, she won her weight class at the Arnold Sports Festival for power for powerlifting, totaling 470 kilograms or 1,034 pounds. Claire, I saw that. I'm pretty sure I was like messaging you during that, but you didn't respond to anything, obviously, because you were competing. Um, that was an awesome performance, I gotta well, say. Thank you, thank you. I'm still very excited about it. 
do you do what I do? Because, like, I I mean, I don't know if this is just a me thing, but, like, if I hit, like, a PR, sometimes at, like, 2 o'clock in the morning, if I'm, like, not doing anything, I'll just, like, go watch videos of myself PRing and just be like, oh, and, like, be so pumped. Yeah, unfortunately, I have a video that I just watch on repeat. I watch my final deadlift on repeat way too many times that I'm willing to uh, say for the Internet. It's a little embarrassing. Is it is it more than a hundred? How many times I've seen it? Yeah. Oh, for sure. <laughs> for sure. <laughs> but I mean, I would say that that's a great thing, right? Because really, if if you're gonna try and justify it to people who think that that's weird, you're just mentally rehearsing, right? You're getting more mental reps for for deadlifting. Exactly. Yes. Right. No, so you're I'm really just... you're like everybody else is in 2020. You're in like 3020 right now. Yes, basically, yeah. I've just watched myself compete at the Arnold a hundred times, preparing for all of the other times I'm going to compete at the Arnold. Yeah. Well, I mean, with the current situation and not having access to gyms and stuff, mental rehearsal has got to be, I'm sure it's got to be key. Yes. I spend a lot of time deadlifting air in my apartment. <laughs> does anyone does anyone make the joke that when you're doing that, like you make it look so light that it's almost as light as air itself? No, unfortunately, no one's made that that joke yet. Okay. I should shame the people I live with for that. I can record that, like, uh, like do like a voice recording, and you can just play that, so that if you want to hear that oh. joke, that in thank you. Yeah, I I might need that. So, Danielle, what are we going to talk about today? So we are going to talk about resistance training for the female athlete. Claire has an immense passion for that, and. Jay and I see it as something that is really lacking in the knowledge of a lot of performing artists. So Claire, if you want to get us started with how you started in the lifting world and we'll go from there. Yeah. So I started lifting when I was in high school. Um, I was a athlete myself. I played soccer and I was a diver. And so I needed to be in the gym to like help improve my performance, both on the field and on the diving board. And then after that, I stopped playing soccer when I got to college, and so I kind of just became a gym rat. And then from there, I've just stayed with resistance training as my general form of physical activity. So it's kind of how I got into it and stuff like that. Do you think this is, that's like a weird term, like gym rat? I don't know. I've heard it so many times. <laughs> I just, that I like, think I've about always it, wondered. Yeah. I've always wondered why they chose a rat for that. I don't know. Like, Have you met when people I think at of, the gym? Well, there's, yes. Some of them are, <laughs> I guess, like skeevy and rat-like. But I would say most people are pretty welcoming and, like, are just there to to get stronger. Yeah, I think it depends on the gym that you're at. So there are some gyms that are super welcoming. Um, and then there are some gyms where you're like, this is this is weird when you walk in. So... And then there's warehouse gyms that probably actually have rats. Probably. Yeah. I think most gyms have rats. But I think the warehouse gyms, you're just more likely to find them. Yeah. Our our gym, like, we have uh, the roof leaks. So, like, when it rains, sometimes you're deadlifting in, like, a puddle. It's... Splashes it's pretty... for effect. Yeah, it's like SeaWorld. you got to bring trash bags with you. Otherwise, you get wet if you're in the front row. I'm so sorry that you guys are going to be subject to me just making horrible jokes this whole time. Um, 
<laughs> so Claire, when you were when you were in high school and like started lifting, did you follow a particular program or was it just more kind of like self discovery? Um, um, I had a weightlifting coach in high school. I would like it was one of my classes. I would go to the gym, the school gym, and the program would already be written for me, so I would just follow the program that was written. And unfortunately, I don't remember what the program was like when I was in high school. There. I think there was some progressive overload, like we had to increase weight every week, and we had to um, do specific lifts. Uh, but unfortunately, I don't remember much about the program itself. So you and mentioned do you. Oh, go ahead. Go ahead. I was gonna say, do you remember feeling uneasy about starting weightlifting, or you know, weird about it, like it was something for men, or did you think it was something that all your friends were doing, and you just got right on board with it? No, so it was weird. I was of the women on the soccer team. I think I was one or there were one or two of us in the class, and then there were only three women in the class in total. So there's only one other woman there, and everyone was super welcoming. Um, but it it wasn't the easiest thing to do because I was like, oh, this feels weird, and there was pushback of like, oh, don't get too big, and don't be like, don't become a man. And there was that social external pushback that I didn't appreciate and didn't love, um, which made it a lot harder. And that's shaped a lot of what I do today and like how I interact with people on social media is I want to be a presence that is actually pushing people the other way. So. So let's talk about some of those stigmas that you mentioned. Yeah. Right. Like don't get big. Yeah. Um, that's a, it's a weird one. So now that I, I was terrified that my legs, when I was in high school, that my legs were getting bigger and it's, they might've been, I also could have just been eating more cause I was working out three times a day and I was hungry. <laughs> and so, um, it's unlikely for women to get bigger while powerlifting or weightlifting or like resistance training, doing any of those things. If you are putting in a concerted effort to get bigger, you will. Um, but that has to be like your main goal. If you're lifting to supplement a sport you're already doing, it's more likely that you're just going to change your body composition and end up being more toned, which is like what a lot of women are looking for. Um, so the likelihood that you actually become bulky or get bigger is highly unlikely. It happens. There are women who want that to happen, but um, they work for many, many years to make that happen. I, uh, so you, you had sent us an article a couple of days ago, uh, called strength becomes her. And it mm -hmm. talks a lot about body image and stuff. And I, I'll be honest, I didn't read the whole thing. I skimmed it because uh, I'm a Jake, come on. But, uh, <laughs> I've never, I never make it past page eight, Claire. I'm so sorry. Um, I don't think my, the article was even eight pages long. There's 20 pages. I have it pulled up here. Oh, okay. I'm sorry. I take um, it back. I take it back. <laughs> but my favorite quote from there is kind of goes along with what you're saying. And it's just, it's physically impossible to look like a man unless you start taking loads of steroids. Yeah, it's true. Um, I, I agree with that statement very strongly. Um, if so, women are much less likely to be able to put on that amount of muscle because we're just not as big as men. Um, we don't have most, most of the amount of muscle mass that you can put on is related to how tall you are and women are just naturally smaller. And so you're not going to be able to put on that amount of muscle mass the same way. 
without extra help. So, and I'd say even the women who take testosterone still don't look like men. So, yeah. or steroids or whatever they take. I don't know. <laughs> I think it's a, like, like AAS is like a larger group of like all sorts of different anabolic supplements as people refer to them as. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so I guess kind of along that line, you, you had mentioned that, um, if you're training for like to supplement another sport Mm -hmm. that odds are, you're really not going to have much of a change other than body composition and just like strength display more Mm -hmm. or less. Yeah. I think that that is, and Danielle, you can probably speak to this more so than me just because you're actually a dancer and I'm just a dude who like works with dancers. (laughs) But, um, I think that that's one of the big things is that whole like aesthetic part of especially ballet, right? Because in the modern world, you definitely see people that look have that more quote unquote like athletic look. Um, but ballet is always con- concerned with like lines and how aesthetic everything looks. And uh, I think the big thing is just people are afraid that they're going to change that aesthetic. Right. Um, in the ballet world, it's all about how lean and toned you can make your lines so even in the college setting I know a lot of my friends were really nervous to pick up any weight um, especially in your upper body because they kind of want that frail look someone who's light and ethereal and can be lifted up by the guy with no effort at all so it's really hard as a dancer to lift weights and get over that stigma and I still think there's a lot of knowledge that our teachers need to have and our professors and dancers overall to be healthier dancers, live longer careers. I mean, most of us stop around 30. So I think if we implemented weight training earlier, it would make a world of a difference. I'm just not sure the best way to bridge that gap because there is so much pushback. What kind of pushback, other than, like, the lines, is there in dance? Um, I, I mean, the lines is the biggest part, but yeah. if you put on any muscle mass, I think you just look, you don't look ethereal, you don't look as graceful. Um, mm-hmm. I mean, it makes sense, right, if you have a shoulder like a bigger deltoid that's more defined, mm-hmm. you're kind of breaking the line when you put your arm out into second position. Um, and the man in the dance world is supposed to be really manly. So there has mm-hmm. to be a big dichotomy between the female, so frail, so beautiful, and the man who's just like this macho, macho man. Mm-hmm. So I think that's also part of it. Um, and I, I think, you know, there is some research that says, weight training and resistance training for dancers is so beneficial, but that research just isn't getting into the dance world like it needs to be. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's like some of the stigma against weights all over the place, not just in dance, but there's this stigma that women have to be this like small, frail, um, what is the complex I'm thinking of? They say it in Hercules. Um, like the Disney movie? Yes, the Disney movie. <laughs> um, I don't know. Just like the small, frail uh, damsel. Thank you. 
damsel mm. who's like in need of saving and then there's supposed to be this like big macho man and you can't have any crossover between the two where I think women should have the ability to say like, no, I can be strong and capable because dancers are incredibly strong. They can do things that I can't even imagine. Mostly they can get their feet up by their head, but um, I can't. Jake can do that too. Yeah, I that's... can too, but I'm pretty sure like my entire pubic synthesis would just rip in half. <laughs> <laughs> but they're so strong. And so like they're, like we're creating these false dichotomies or like these false barriers that women can't cross and um, where in reality they have already crossed them. They just have to hide it. And it's just preventing women from actually doing the things that are going to make them stronger and make them more capable at what they need to be doing either, whether that's in sport or in life. So as like a, as a coach, as an athlete, how, how do you combat those ideas or the stigmas and how would you like what are your thoughts on how we should do that like as clinicians as coaches mm -hmm. that work with dancers or just individuals in general who may be adverse to thinking about resistance training or kind of getting in that world yeah, that's a great question so i just want to make sure that i have all the things that you wanted me to cover so how like as an athlete i combat that and how do i do that as a coach Mm -hmm. slash clinician. Okay. So as an athlete, I have learned to focus on what my body can do rather than what it looks like. So, um, and it takes a long time to get to that point. Like there are still parts of me that say like, Oh, well, are my, should I be nervous about the fact that my, that I look a certain way or that my legs are like the size that they are. And, um, it takes a lot of effort to say, no, look at what my legs can do. They can move all this weight. Or um, if you're a dancer, you could say, like, look at what my legs can do. They can help me leap this high or do this. I'm sorry. I know nothing about dance. Um, but It's okay. I'll just cut and insert French jump terms in there. <laughs> There's only a thousand. There's, yeah. Yeah. Um, so all of these things that are so impressive – um, and focusing on those things and also having a really strong support group. So I have, um, weirdly, I have like three guys that I train with. That's actually not weird. Most of the people I train with are men. Um, but they're all really supportive and focus nothing on what I look like and more on like what I can do, how powerful I am and things like that. And they help me instead of like making me feel weird or sexualized at the gym. So that's one point. And then as a coach, I, I do something similar. I focus on my athletes and I make my athletes come up with um, metric based goals. So they're like objective things that they want out of their training. So when I have an athlete come to me and they're like, Oh, I want to train with you. I'm like, great. You need to come up with how much weight you want to lift. Uh, something, if they want it to be body focused, it needs to be a number. So like a change in waist circumference, it can't be, I never let athletes focus on the scale so, like, they can change their waist circumference if that's something that they're trying to lose weight. But it has to be, like, it can't be, like, oh, I have to feel better about myself. What does that mean? That's not, like, an objective goal that we can work towards together. So we have to have something measurable where we can see progress. So focusing on things that we can actually measure against, like, a, a ruler or something is helpful and also supporting them and saying, like, this is not the most important thing in your life. Have other hobbies. Have other passions. Your job is important. Stuff like that. 
So when we talk about the number on a scale, like, does it have any importance at all? Like outside of weight classes, certainly if you're trying to compete in a certain weight class, you yeah. would need to make sure that your your body weight is within that range. Um, but you mentioned that you don't use that. You don't like using that as a metric with people you work with. Why, why is that? Um, so I find that women, when they change, when they start power or weightlifting or resistance training, their weight doesn't actually change. Their body composition does. So like they're going to probably lose a little bit of fat, gain a little bit of muscle mass. And all in all, the number's not going to change on the scale. Uh, and they're probably not going to look that different. Um, so that's why I don't let them use that metric because it's really it can be really frustrating. So unless you're like trying to lose um, a ton of body fat, it's probably not the metric that you want to be using. It's not sensitive enough. Mm-hmm. But it, I, at least I've seen in some of the, with the sorry words today. No, with good. some of the collegiate dancers that I've worked with, yeah, that there's still kind of this pervasive use of um, either body image or weight on the scale, uh-huh. sometimes even for, for greats. Like if they have juries or um, uh, performances that they're getting graded on towards the end of a semester, there are some institutions that will have them weigh in, and in some situations they're getting graded on the aesthetic nature, right? Of, of what they're they're getting of. graded on their weight so i'll say some some programs do i think more professional companies do that versus universities because a lot of universities rightfully so get kickback for using weight as a metric um but i'll say that dance i think is a really unique sport in that the athlete is looking at themselves like 24-7 in the mirror, and you're always mm-hmm. training in front of a mirror unless you're going out for a performance. So I think mm-hmm. the amount of body dysmorphia that I see in my young dancers is way higher than like a soccer player or yeah. you know, someone playing volleyball or any of those things. So I know I monitored my weight, but I was just so focused on the look in the mirror. And yeah. I felt like no matter what I did, like it always seemed like you could look better, you know, because you're comparing yeah. yourself to all the other girls in the room and mm-hmm. none of us are the same, you know? Yeah. That's really hard. Um, yeah. Do Does anyone ever, like, push dancers to compare themselves to, like, them previously instead of comparing themselves to the other dancers in the room? I know that's hard because you're, like, fighting for a spot on the stage, or like fighting for a specific something, um, but I mean, I have definitely gotten feedback that like you looked this way in your sophomore year, but you look different this year. Mm-hmm. Like maybe you should lose a couple pounds to look like that. I think I've gotten that kind of feedback or mm-hmm. you don't look like you're jumping. I got this feedback a lot. You don't look like you're jumping as high as you used to. And I know when I got that feedback was when I was really struggling, you know, mm-hmm. menstrual dysfunction and like disordered eating patterns. And it really took a hit on my performance. And that was when I really had to take a step back and realize it can really affect, you know, my career in dance if I don't take this type of stuff seriously. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. And when you say that, you mean like you took a step back and you realize like maybe I'm not fueling my body properly 
and I need to start doing that in order to be successful. Yeah. Right. Some of the numbers I've seen, at least for um, like athletic amenorrhea in the dance population, is that it can get up to 50% in ballet. 50% of the girls have it. Yeah. And is that just amenorrhea or dysmenorrhea as well? So what what is explain to me the difference okay, because so, I'm I'm just gonna go with the fact that I'm an uneducated male in this in this realm. <laughs> so amenorrhea means if I I'm pretty sure this is correct. Um, amenorrhea is when you have a loss of your period, and dysmenorrhea is when it's not happening regularly. So um, I believe the statistics that I saw were amenorrhea, so complete okay. loss of period. Okay. So that means it's probably higher with also dysmenorrhea included in that so probably yeah so i know it's a problem in like a lot of different kinds of athletes so uh as a diver it we had like a well um a team that was very supportive and so we all tried to support each other to keep each other from doing stuff like that um but we spent a lot of time in swimsuits in a public place and it, it's hard if you're going through puberty and women feel uncomfortable during that time. Things are changing and there are like stretch marks appearing on your body and that's weird and it makes you feel very uncomfortable and it takes away that sense of control. And so I think it's it's hard. <laughs> but I can't imagine looking in a mirror all the time and having to do that. So that's Claire, you, you must not go lift biceps in front of the mirror all the time. <laughs> I don't actually. No. No. Jake, how commonly do you see fears of resistance training in the dancers that you're treating in the clinic? And what kind of tools do you use to combat those fears? Because uh, you're say... obviously a bigger guy who lifts a lot of weights. And so dancers, you know, are on the opposite end of that, you know. Yeah, I mean, more or less, I, if no one's seen me before, I'm, I'm basically just a human meatball. Um, I'm like 5'7", usually average between 345, 350 right now. Um, and I do competitive strongman, so I'm like close to a 400-pound log press, overhead press. My bench is probably right around 5. I don't train it that often. Same. And like a couple weeks ago, <laughs> just hit like a 705 squat. So Jeez. I'm a... I'm a large human being, and when I walk out into the waiting room to greet a parent and their young dancer daughter, who typically is between 10 and 14 years old, the look on the mother's face is typically one of sheer horror. <laughs> they're just like, who is this man? This is, the, they're like in their head, you can see them just like, this is the dance guy? <laughs> and, uh... And I'm just like, hey, you know, I'm Jake. Like, you know, let's, let's come on back. And, um, you know, we have that conversation sometimes. Like, yeah, I probably don't look like I know what I'm talking about when it comes to dance. But then usually when I start asking questions and, and dropping words like, you know, plie, second position, like, badma, like, degage, whatever it is. And, and asking them about, like, roles that they've had, like, in the Nutcracker or different pieces. You can see, like, the kid, the, usually the patient I'm working with is just like, oh, this guy knows what he's talking about. And then usually the parents are kind of like, all right, this is cool. But then when we bring up the fact that I typically treat in a gym and with that population in general, I tend to use more 
resistance training type exercises because it's something that is from a research standpoint demonstrated that it's it's a deficit across that population and so you know we have that conversation and i try to make it where it's a a team-based approach right where um if there is something that's uncomfortable or there's concern about doing a particular movement or anything like that like let's talk about it right let's let's try it we can find ways to change it but at the end of the day like our goal is to just get you stronger so that you have more physical capacity, more activity tolerance, you can do the things that you want to do and express yourself on the stage much better, um, but that you're not afraid to do some of these things. Now, because barbells tend to be, and dumbbells tend to be kind of like scary for a lot of people, I usually use kettlebells because we have a decent range of kettlebells at our clinic from like, you know, four pounds to a hundred. And so... Usually within a couple weeks, I can get even like a 10-year-old girl deadlifting 100 pounds with a kettlebell pretty easily. And I think it's one of the things that I like to do is typically kettlebell is it's novel, right? Like most of them have never seen one before. So it's just like, oh, this is there's nothing inherently scary about it because it's not like a big scary barbell that they maybe have seen in the past. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, we'll modify it. We'll, we'll deadlift from a box if we have to to kind of get them started. But then the other thing is I will refer to the, the kettlebells by colors because they have, like, rings around the, the horn of the kettlebell um, versus, like, using the weight on the on the bell itself because I think that number can be kind of uh, scary or ins- inspire maybe a little bit of uh, discomfort, agitation, anxiety. So the, my favorite game in the whole world is having someone deadlift 100 pounds asking them how heavy they think it is and usually they're like oh those it's probably like what 40 pounds and then i have them look at it and they're like i did that (laughs) and when you do that a lot of times with like a 10 or 12 year old girl the fact that you just like gave them confidence and showed them how strong they are like the light bulb just goes off in their head and then they're like this is awesome like i want to do this and so then you get back to seeing those objective changes with like how strong they can be and you make it so it's not scary and then we get into like trap bar deadlifts and all sorts of other stuff. But nice. What's I, the most common injury you see? Um, if you if you had to guess, I would probably say hip stuff. Okay. I think like labral pathologies or the potential for an intraarticular hip um, pathology is probably the biggest thing I see. Yeah. Is that? I was, I was curious. Yeah, I think hip pathology is huge. I also think foot and ankle stuff is huge, like posterior ankle impingement. A lot of second and third metatarsal stress fractures I know are huge, and they even call it like nutcracker syndrome because so many of the girls are increasing their activity, you know, threefold around the time nutcracker rolls around. They're probably not fueling their body correctly. They're not getting adequate sleep, um, managing their stress correctly, and they they just start to go down. I mean, I covered a lot of shows with the Kansas City Ballet, and they just, you know, go down like flies during that season. Um, and it's a real shame, but it happens a lot. And we've kind of talked about this too, and I think it speaks to a little bit of like what Claire has kind of touched on when it comes to like programming, I think you talked about like progressive overload, linear periodization a a little bit. Mm -hmm. Um, But I think when we look at how 
a studio sometimes structures their programming, if you will, like leading up to a concert or performance, I feel like that um, it's not always done to the best that it could be done. I feel like the structure of a class, oftentimes, you you know, and it depends studio to studio and like who's who's running the choreography and stuff. But I feel like a lot of times you're looking at shorter durations of activity, like maybe 30 seconds to two minutes working on a particular piece of a, of a performance, trying to get like, you know, certain transitions or steps down or whatever it is. And that when you go toward the like actual performance or the competition, uh, everything starts to ramp up, right? So we have this massive spike in acute activity, which they haven't necessarily prepared for from like a metabolic or strength perspective. And then I usually that's when like all these injuries start popping out because depending on the studio, that may be when they're first having access to their performance stage. So you're getting a change in surface. Sometimes you're getting an increase in like rehearsal time because you're doing one to two a day. And then a lot of times you're going through the full piece, which maybe you haven't done that previously. Then you're adding in costumes. So you're getting different um, weights depending on costumes, props, stuff like that, interacting with the stage. You have like a million of these variables that get introduced and then everybody's stressed out. Everybody's anxious. You know, there's like stuff that's going wrong last minute. So they're like making changes. And then you go into performance weekend and usually there's a rehearsal, dress rehearsal Thursday night, then opening Friday. And then usually two shows on Saturday, one on Sunday or two on both days. And so like from a performance and activity standpoint, you just have this massive ramp up of stuff that probably hasn't been prepared for as well as it could have been for the previous couple months going into that. Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting to see, to like think about like where, where would you put in, like slowly start ramping up earlier and like how to like kind of prepare for that. So I don't know enough about dance to be able to, to say like where you should do that. Um, But it's interesting to kind of start to think about like, one, how far out, and two, like, yeah, you should start on the stage probably a lot longer before you do, and maybe working with other implements in the studio as well. Is Both of those are interesting. So if we kind of, like, look at this more from, like, a resistance training standpoint, mm-hmm. right? Like, if you had a competition, yeah, how how do you program for that? How do you prepare for that? So it's usually we're taking about 12 weeks out from a competition where you start changing programming to to hit that competition goal. And so over that period of time, you're probably running like one last um, strength cycle. So you're trying to just like get some volume on the bar, run through some of those cycles to increase your strength. And then six to eight weeks out, you're starting to increase the weight on the bar a lot, um, but you're decreasing the volume. So you're playing this fun game. That's sarcasm, if the internet can't tell, of trying to get enough adaptation on the lifter that they're going to actually see some strength increases without giving them so much that they're um, overly fatigued. So like you're playing this fatigue and... um, adaptation game of trying to mediate both and get them one to go up while keeping the other one as low as possible. 
So you can't just throw on all of the adaptation-inducing stressors without recognizing that those stressors also induce fatigue. So, Which is interesting because I feel like that last statement is basically it just sums up like tech mm-hmm. week or performance week, I feel like, in, in the dance world. Because mm-hmm. you're taking all of those stressors and adaptations and you're just like, we got to do this now. Yeah. All of it. Right away. All of it. Yeah. It's like, because they're paying people to do the lighting, to do the teching, to do costumes. And dance companies are, are broke, like everyone is in mm-hmm. dance. And, you know, they really don't want to pay for more than they have to. So it's like Jake said, get in there the Thursday or Wednesday before the show on Friday and Saturday and work it out, even if you have to stay there super late. And by that point, a couple of dancers have probably gone down with injuries. So everyone's trying to cope with that. Understudies are going into other people's roles. So some people are having to do double or triple what they had anticipated. So there's just a lot up in the air those few nights. What would you suggest to like, if you had all the money and all the control over a a performance, what would you change to like kind of try and slow that roll into competition and make it more controlled and easier on the dancer? Danielle, I'm going to defer to you first while I, (laughs) while I draw upon my years of dancing and wedding knowledge to uh, articulate my eloquent thoughts. I think that's really hard. I think if you can get in into the rehearsal space, you know, maybe two to three weeks before the show and do like a mock week where they run the tech, um, make sure all the lights and sounds are correct. And maybe the dancers go half out. So we'd call it marking where you're not doing all of the reps of the jumps that you would do. Um, I think that's one way I saved myself from a lot of injuries was not going full out all the time. So not going hundred percent max effort. Um, and maybe if they did that for one week and then the next week they transitioned to like a 75% workload. Um, and then the next week they went into the show. I just, I would think would be the best. Um, I don't think that's realistic for a lot of companies. And I think one of the issues that I ran into during those times was trying to keep with my, you know, cross training, resistance training while you're already working in a fatigued state during these tech and dress rehearsals. So I think that's when dancers totally ditch that side of the equation because they just don't have the time and probably energy from a nutritional standpoint to even fathom doing those things. Mm-hmm. So I think it's also acceptable to let those kind of bleed off near the end. So like yeah. I do cardiovascular training twice a week. Um, right now I'm doing it more cause I don't have access to a gym as much, but, um, <laughs> but that bleeds off. It goes down to once a week, like three weeks before the event. And then I don't do any cardiovascular training two weeks beforehand. I maybe do like one bike ride for 30 minutes and that's it because you want all of the adaptations to be as similar as you can get them to the competition. So I would argue that that would be okay that they drop it as long as they're still eating enough that they can fuel the rest of what they're doing. So, but there's this 
idea of like, oh, if I'm not working out, I don't get to eat. And that's not, oh yeah, that's not how uh, nutrition works, unfortunately. Yeah. Sorry, Jake, I totally didn't let yeah. you answer that question. So <laughs> yeah, go no. ahead. No, no, it's fine. I, I think, um, I mean, obviously like my background is more like resistance training type stuff anyway. And so I, I, for me, I would, and not that like, like I personally don't really use a lot of like larger blocks for training. Like I'm not going to program out a year and then do a bunch of like meso and micro cycles. Like that's just not how I like to do it. Um, but I think that at least within that two to three month stage, there should be more of an emphasis on, I think, honestly, doing some stuff as part of a company or a studio. Uh, I don't think that there's enough education on like training for different metabolic pathways, right? I think the large amount of it is going to be your shorter duration bursts of like cardiovascular activity in a in a typical class. But then when you go on the stage, if you're on a piece that's 15 minutes long. You may not be dancing in that whole 15 minutes, but you're going to be running back and forth off the stage or sometimes even going off one stage, sprinting around the back, coming back on the side in like 15 seconds to then go back on and dance from the other. So there's like all this stuff that's happening backstage. And if you've never been behind uh, or like backstage to performance, like those athletes, and I'm going to say athlete because dancers are athletes, even if they, they are athletes. an athlete. Those athletes are just like, <gasps> and then they have to like stop breathing, put a smile on because everything has to be perfect and then go back out onto the mm-hmm. stage. And yeah. so I think yeah. that, you know, like what Claire was saying, certainly the, the outside of class time stuff could definitely be tapered off so that you're, you're not affecting your performance on the stage. But I think that those months leading up, there really needs to be an effort to get more true, like steady state cardiovascular work in because i think when you look at what's identified as deficits it's it's resistance training and a lot of times it's cardiovascular like overall mm-hmm. cardiovascular capacity yeah. because they're basically doing a bunch of sprint work yeah or and then they don't then they're expected to go it'd be it'd be like training for you know a hundred meter dash and then going to run a, a mile race yeah you know so you're still going to be a good runner but yeah. you might not be yeah the best so like i think if you look at all top athletes, they're probably pretty good at switching between sports. It's the specific parts of the sport that they're not good at, but the best athletes in the world are available and have the metabolic pathways trained to do a lot of things. And I think that's something that we miss out in powerlifting a lot. Like mm-hmm. a lot of powerlifters, yours truly included, can't run very far and probably <laughs> need to be able to. Um, just for health benefits. And I think it sounds like the same is true in dance. And I think when we look at it that way, what we're seeing, and Danielle, you feel free to hop in if, if I'm not quite expressing this correctly. But I think, at least in my opinion, what we see is dance tends to have a much more higher focus on that technical skill of like the expression and performance of it and not necessarily on building that like GPP or general ability to be athletic, right? Whereas in a lot of other sports we see like off season is just, Hey, let's just get stronger, faster and, and better from an athletic standpoint. Or, you know, in a lot of high schools, you know, there's a lot of encouragement to go, okay, you're done with football season, go wrestle or go play basketball, Mm -hmm. do something different. That's going to build you as an athlete 
so that you can build all those metabolic pathways. You can get stronger. You can work on expressing power, speed, endurance, all those things outside of that technical mastery component of it. Yeah. Where I think dance tends to go, you know, the idea is if you want to get better at dancing, you have to dance more. And so when you look at a lot of these like professional studios and companies and collegiate programs, a lot of them are already dancing for probably close to 30 hours a week, right? right? Between class time and rehearsals. And then, you know, some of them are teaching or doing something else. And so you're looking at 30 to 40 hours of just dance-based activity. And then a lot of them are just in such a fatigued state, they're not getting any supplemental stuff to, to help reduce that fatigue or enhance their ability to, to do what they need to do. Yeah, or hands, enhance their ability to manage the fatigue. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. And I think if something else that might contribute to this is dancers start really young. And are dancers usually just like single sport athletes? They only dance? I would say for the most part, yes. Um, I think some dancers start with the dance and gymnastics combination because they both require an incredible amount of flexibility. But... I think you self-select into one of the sports pretty early on, mostly because ballet, I'll say specifically, trains in turnouts so where your legs are fully externally rotated. And gymnastics is always done, you know, with neutral hip rotation. And I think if you're better at one or the other, you self-select into that sport. Or if your feet and hips are more flexible, you probably choose dance over gymnastics. And if your back is more flexible, you probably choose gymnastics. Um, But I I mean, I knew I wanted to dance professionally when I was probably 11. And I think that's probably the norm for most people who go into collegiate and professional dance. Now, would you, would you think of like, cause certainly there are different styles of dance, right? Um, so like ballet, jazz, tap, modern, lyrical, um, Irish dance. Like I've seen people that that will certainly choose, you know, different stylistic things that they throw in and what they do. Would you look at that as a separate sport almost, or is it too similar to um, each other that you're not really getting enough variability in activity? I would consider those somewhat different sports, especially if you look at ballet versus modern. Those are training totally different energy pathways, total different you know demands on the body. And I think the evidence has shown that those who cross train, say in ballet, modern, and jazz are not as injured in those that just choose one avenue. So I think that is a great option, especially for the young dancers that I see in clinic, but a lot of them just fall in love with one of them and don't see the point of doing another thing because it will take away from their primary passion. Which I think goes back to that idea of like, you know, the only way to get better at dance is to dance more, right? Mm-hmm. Because you're so, I think the dance world as a whole is very focused on that technical mastery, not necessarily on improving your overall athleticism or capabilities to become a better performer on the stage. Right. And I think it's really important as like a young athlete to build a really strong base. And then maybe as you get older, then you can start to specialize, but probably not until college or at least in the sports that I've 
uh, done and worked with, probably doesn't make sense to start specializing until college when it like actually starts to matter on a monetary scale. Because if you have the availability to do all of these things when you're younger, you can be involved in these things and build that base to better help you when you're older and when you're trying to develop a lot of that technique. Granted, that's idealistic and maybe not realistic. But I think that the general literature out there on sports specialization reflects that. Right. Like the idea of not having children specialized too early mm-hmm. because from a development standpoint and like injury risk and all this stuff, there's there's some adverse statistical effects that you may fall into. Mm-hmm. Um, and again, when we're just talking about building overall expression of things like power, endurance, speed that comes from like using different training modalities and being exposed to different sports um, to kind of help facilitate that just natural growth. Yeah. But I think we still see, cause there's a lot of uh, like professional studios that will take like young dancers in and like to develop them, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, that is correct. A lot of kids will start doing homeschool around 10 and go train at these professional companies, and it'll basically be their full-time job, even from such a early age. And those companies will take those dancers and train them through high school and then put them into the company, um, which isn't a bad gig, you know, as a dancer, because you're already set in your ways and you know where you're going. But from a physical health standpoint, I don't think it's the best thing, but... Mm-hmm. Yeah. And some of the more like the, I guess, like higher tier companies or organizations, like if you look at something like Cirque du Soleil, right, I know they're not just a dance organization. They're more circus based, mm-hmm. but they do employ all sorts of individuals from different backgrounds and come in for performing arts. And they are very big on using strength and conditioning and dietitians and all sorts of different like specialty groups to help with overall athletic development and performance. Um, but you just don't see that at, at a local level. Yeah. That's true. I think it's, if dance is characteristically pretty um, financially tied it can be hard to be paying for the services. And I'm sure that uh, paying to have your child in dance means that you probably aren't going to be spending a lot of money on their strength and conditioning coach or their, or their like RD or th- sorry, that's a registered dietitian um, who would be handling their like food and or their nutrition. And all of that is like, it takes a, it takes a village for sure. So yeah. But I just wish there was more education, you know, from like a younger standpoint. Mm-hmm. Like I feel like, and that's one of the things that like Danielle and I have talked about with this whole platform is to definitely like expose people to a lot of these ideas and concepts and modalities that could help them from a longevity standpoint. Yeah. Uh, because there's all this literature, you know, like if you go to organizations like iAdams, there's a journal of dance medicine and science. They talk about stuff like this. 
there's always research being done on like, you know, like nutrition or body image or things like that presented at conferences. But I feel like that information and those concepts and talking about those things doesn't get disseminated down to the, the dancers or the parents of the dancers. Yeah, I think that's a, a challenge of most scientific literature is that you have all of these professors and academics who are really good at what they do and they create awesome research and they put it in a journal and they're like, cool, that's it, that's it, I'm done. And then the only people who can access that are other academics and people who know how to read scientific literature. It's not the easiest stuff in the world to read. And then that's it. That's where it stops. So if you're lucky enough to be a dancer who can read scientific literature, great. But then who else is going to be doing that um, boots on the ground dissemination of information to dancers who might not be in some of those bigger companies who could uh, afford the help of those RDs and scientists who can help them. But how do you help the people who are just starting out or the people who aren't at the tip top level? Like they also need help. So it's like a science communication problem. Now, Claire, if I'm not mistaken, you just had an article published, yes? I did. I did. Yes. It was from my master's. It's all about walking um, with walking on slopes and about how we use our metabolic energy to either move our mass up the slope or um, forward on the slope. So it's, That sounds incredibly fascinating. It, if you are a walking biomechanist, it's interesting, and there's a lot more research to be done on the topic. Mm. Um, but it's it's complicated and it's kind of hard to talk about without visuals. But um, it took a long time. <laughs> I'm happy to be done with it, but it's hard to communicate that kind of science without giving like a whole background. So um, there there needs there's a need in the scientific community for more people who can do that for all athletes and all people. So do you have any ideas on how we can better like disseminate stuff like that or facilitate conversation? Um, well, to better disseminate it, there just needs to be people who are able to take the scientific literature and reformat it into a easy to read kind of um, interesting article or like a YouTube video or something that's more easily accessible. Um, but no one is going to pay people to do that is the issue. So like you have to be interested in it enough yourself to do it yourself and supply that information. I don't think that uh, there are people who do make a living doing that. Uh, they are few and far between. So, and then what was the second part of your question? I'm sorry. Oh, um, I guess facilitating conversations about these topics. I mean, obviously we're on a podcast talking about these things right now. Yeah. But I mean, is there, should we be using social media more? Like, do you have strategies that you use to facilitate discussions on, on topics like this? I definitely use social media. I'm trying to write as much as I can in my free time to start getting female athletes to understand the importance of, and directing it at female athletes specifically, 
um, to get them to understand not only the importance of resistance training, but how to get started. Um, so I use social media and I um, write articles and I put them on my website, um, but that reaches like all of six people. So hooray for those six female athletes, but um, it's, I don't know, it's a challenge. I think we're still trying to figure it out. So sadly, that is where we're gonna end it today. Felt like it was a good stopping point when I was going back and editing. But I hope you guys enjoyed the first part of our interview with Claire. Uh, and tune in next week for when we post part two. All right, guys. Thanks for listening. And remember, don't break a leg.